chapter 12. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they left out, they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham, Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. This is God's word. Just a reminder, there is a little bit of an outline on the back of the bulletin for you, and if you have questions, you can um, text them to me. Last week, I got a couple questions that I, uh, that I didn't answer, because I say, go ahead and text your questions to me, and then I don't look at my phone. So I, I hope to learn my lesson and look at my phone this time. Um, what we've been doing for the last little while, for those of you who are, who are guests with us, we've been looking at these earliest chapters in Genesis, and we've been uh, in the middle of a series we're calling The True Story of the World. And it's based around an idea that a philosopher by the name of Alistair McIntyre uh, came up with when he said, I, I can't know what to do or what I am supposed to do until I know what story I am a part of. Now, that may sound weird to you, but think of it this way. You remember the show, um, Whose Line Is It Anywhere? You remember? Or Anyway, sorry. Remember that show? It was pretty funny, eh? Uh, it was an improv show. It's all about improv acting. And in improv acting, what happens is, is there's no, like, set script or anything. You kind of make it up as you go. But it's not entirely made up as you go because what happens at the beginning is, is you create a scenario. You create a kind of a baseline narrative story. And then based around those big picture parameters, you know how you're supposed to behave as an actor in this improv sketch. Well, what we're trying to understand is if we understand the, the big picture parameters of the story of Scripture, we will know better how we are supposed to live as actors in that story. You follow what I'm saying? Here's this first audience, or sorry. If you say... Um, the universe, the world, is just kind of the production of random, unguided chance, then your answer to the question, how I'm supposed to live, would be, well, I figure it out myself, because there is no overarching story, there is no overarching narrative or law that I'm supposed to conform myself to. If you say, well, 
No, there's a creator who designed the universe and, and put history into motion. You will say, well, I have to figure out what that, that history is all about, where it's going, what the point of it is, in order for me to live well in that story. Well, we believe that the Bible tells us the true story of the world. That's what Christianity believes. And so we're looking at these stories together. And don't forget, we've been talking about the first audience to Genesis, right? That's the, the people of Israel who were taken out of uh, Egypt after many centuries of living in slavery there. God rescued them and he took them to this new land called Canaan. And along the way, he tells them this story to reprogram them and help them understand the true story of the world. What is the point of this rescue? Why did God free them from Egypt? And why is he taking them to Canaan? What's this all about? That's what this story that we just read this morning answers. And it's what we're going to look at together today. There's a place in Hosea where, where Hosea, reflecting on uh, the people of Israel being rescued from Egypt, he says, out of Israel I called, or sorry, out of Egypt I called my son. And so the people of Israel, hearing this from the lips of Moses while they're sitting around the campfire in the desert, they hear that they are a called people, the children of God. What does that mean? Well, we're going to look at four, three, three things this morning. We're going to look at what it means to be a called people. It means to be called personally. It means to be called radically. It means to be called missionally. And when we figure that out, we know our purpose in life. Here we go. Called personally. God's people are a called people, but they're called personally. What does that mean? When you read in, in ch the end of chapter 11, you, you find out that Abram is part of this family. Terah and Nahor and Haran and all these names get mentioned, right? And when you go back to Genesis chapter 4, you remember that there were two lines that were sort of developing in history. There was that wicked line of Cain, and then there was that righteous line of Seth. Well, Terah is part of that righteous line of Seth. Abram is part of that righteous line of Seth. The problem is, is that by the time we get to Genesis chapter 11, this righteous line of Seth, they're at that for us. For example, uh, it says in verse 28 that Haran died in, the Ur, in Ur of the Chaldeans. That's basically Babylon. They were not supposed to be in Babylon because if you look down at verse 31, it says, Terah took his son Abram, his son Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter Lot, Sarah, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan, but they came to Haran and they settled there. So they didn't go to where they were supposed to be. They were in this pagan territory. Plus, Terah actually means moon worship, and it just so happens that the Babylonians worship the moon. So we're getting all these sort of hints from the author that things are not the way they're supposed to be. But if that doesn't convince you, that's fine. Because we don't need just hints when we have Joshua chapter 24. Because in Joshua 24, it says this. This is Joshua talking to the people of Israel before they actually enter the promised land. And in verse 2, he says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Long ago... Your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. So Abram 
was an idol worshiper. And he came from a family of idol worshipers. So the picture we're supposed to get is, is that up until now, it looks like humanity is losing touch with this idea of one God who is in sovereign control over the whole universe, and the entire world is starting to, to fall into that paganism that believed that there were all kinds of little gods, etc. So you're supposed to think, oh no, it's hopeless, but then verse 1 of chapter 12 happens. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. God comes to this one man and he says, you, hey, you, Abram, get out of here. Get yourself out of here. Leave these people. But God came personally to this one man. And you got to remember, Abram is no different from the rest of his family. They were idol worshipers. He's an idol worshiper. God comes and boom, says, you, Follow me. Every follower of Jesus Christ is called personally. Listen, it is great to grow up in a Christian home. It's great to be taught when you're a little kid about who God is, about who Jesus is. It's an incredible privilege. And we've had people, by God's grace, we've had people come to the faith who didn't grow up with that, and they will tell you the incredible sense of lost outness that they, that they live with, that they lost out on that in- incredible gift. But you need to remember, you cannot, 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 cannot rely on your family pedigree for your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not like your eye color or your nationality. You hear it all the time. You hear people say, well, you know, my family is Presbyterian. My family is Catholic. My family is Anglican. My family is United Church. Whatever. But you cannot rely on that history and think that you have a personal living relationship with God just because you come from a family that has had living in personal relationships with God. There's a place where Jesus is talking to the Jews. And the Jews say to Jesus, well, we're Abraham's descendants. We've got this great pedigree. And Jesus looks at them and he says, so? You've got to accept me. If you don't accept me, your family pedigree means nothing. Here's Nicodemus. He's part of the Pharisees. He's part of the, the Sanhedrin. He's one of the, the religious head honchos in the city of Jerusalem. And he comes to meet with Jesus in John chapter 3. And he tries to say, Jesus, boy, you're a very interesting, fascinating teacher. And Jesus looks at him and says, you need to be born again. What? Me? Me? But I've been in the religious community for a very long time. I know my Torah. Let's talk Torah, Jesus. I've got that whole thing memorized. You must be born again. Listen, kids, kids, what's a kid in here? I don't know. Anybody under 80, listen. Don't assume that because you're in a Christian home that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Don't just make that assumption. And parents... Don't just assume that because you've been taking your kids to church week after week for years and years, or maybe you've even paid 
thousands and thousands of dollars for them to go to a, a Christian day school or something. That just because they're participating in all those things, that they're in a real living relationship with God. You need to be called. You need to be called personally. Every single one of us needs to be called personally. Well, you say, okay, that's a little nerve-wracking. How in the world do I know I'm called? I'm so glad you asked. Part two, point two, is the call is radical. You know, you know you've been called personally when you realize you've been called radically. Now, there's two ways in this passage that we see this call is radical. And the first way is that God's call on every individual person is a call to a radical change in identity. If you look at verse 1 again, God says, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, for ancient peoples, who you are was dictated to you by the place you had in your community. So you thought about, someone said, so who are you? Tell me about yourself. You would say, well, I'm part of this family. I'm part of this ethnicity. I'm part of this community. I'm part of this nation. I'm part of this religion. And that's how you understood who you were, okay? Your community created your identity for you. Today, it's very, very different. So that's all kind of external, right? Today, in our modern context, uh, psychologists talk about something called self-construal. Your self-construal, psychologists say, is that which helps you identify who you are. And it's not based on those kinds of externals. It's based largely on internal things, like your beliefs, your feelings, your dreams, your desires, your wants. Now, regardless of whether it's defined externally or internally, like the ancients versus the moderns, regardless of that, it's still there, an identity every one of us has to have. Who are you? Well, I'm Scottish. I'm, insert your job. For many of us, that's who we are, right? So, we, we Abraham, or Abram, as he's, as he's called here, was actually called away from his first identity to a new identity. And for a follower of Jesus Christ, when you are called individually by God, you are called into a new identity that is, that is formed first by him. Let me give you a, a great illustration of this. If you've ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire, there's these two char character, main characters, Harold Abrams and Eric Little, right? And they're both sprinters, and they're both going to go to the 1924 Olympics. Harold Abrams says, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. And he's talking about the 100-meter final at the Olympics. He needs to win it. He has 10 seconds to justify his existence. Because who he is, his identity, is completely wrapped up in his success as a sprinter. Eric Little finds out that the 100-meter final, and he had beaten Harold Abrams earlier in the season, and he was one of the favored uh, guys to win the race. He finds out that the final is going to be run on a Sunday, and he said, not doing it. Now, I'm not telling you that you can't run on Sundays, okay? What I'm telling you is, is that his identity was rooted in Jesus Christ. He said, I can't run on Sunday because of who I am as a follower of Jesus Christ. 
And when you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your identity comes first and foremost from Him. It's a change. Radically. So when someone asks you who you are, what's the first thing you think about? If I ask you, just rhetorically, who are you? What's the first thing you want to answer? Huh? Your name. Okay. And if I said, tell me about yourself, what's the first thing you want to tell me about yourself? I'm a follower of Jesus. I would hope, if you are a believer, that's going to be, but that's got to be habitual. That's got to be instinctual because that's your core identity. That's the radical change in identity that Abram was undergoing as God called him out of uh, Haran and into Canaan. But that's not all of it. It's also a change in leadership. Now, this is, you know, this is where it starts getting scary, okay? God comes to Abram and he says, Go to this land, I will show you. And Abram says, okay. And we, because we're just reading it on a page and we don't know the, the area and we don't think very much when we read, I mean, I, I'm just admitting myself, we don't realize what just happened here, okay? God says to Abram, leave your family behind, leave your country behind, leave your people behind, and get out of here. And God says, where, or Abram says, where are we going? And God's, God says, I'll tell you later. Just go. And the trip from where Abram was to where Abram was going was over 500 miles. I don't even know what that is in kilometers. It's a lot. And they didn't have the 401, and they didn't have Google Maps, and they just had to follow. And God does this again to Abram because God comes to Abram and says, Hey, um, I'm going to give you a son. And Abram says, Well, I'm kind of old. When are you going to give me a son? And God says, Oh, I'll tell you later. And then later on, when he finally does get a son, God says, says to Abram, hey, take that son of yours and go up on that mountain and sacrifice your son. And Abram goes, what? Why? God says, I'll tell you later. Now, if you have been a follower of Jesus for a while, you know that that is exactly what God does to you. And he does it to you all the time. God says, I will become the leader. You are the follower the leadership goes from you to him. And he's not always going to tell you what's going on. He, he, there's a, this is why Jesus calls Abram the father of all who believe, because this is the nature of faith. When God calls, you give up control of your life, and you obey, and you follow him even when you don't get it. I was talking to people this week uh, who were kind of going through a hard time and uh, had been going on for quite a while, and they just didn't understand it, and they didn't get it. And we, and we talked about how God's leading often looks like, like your headlights at night. Your headlights at night, they only shine so far, right? Especially if you're like pre-halogen or pre-LED or whatever those bright ones are now. That when they, you ever notice that when you're driving and those bright white lights are shining on you now? They light up the whole world. But the regular old headlights... When you drive and you, you're, you're in the dark, you, you see that they, they light up a certain distance and no further. And you just, you just have enough to keep going. But interestingly, as you keep going, those headlights continue to reveal more road to you. And so you can continue to go. But you can never see beyond those headlights. And that's how God works. If you say to God, I will go if you show me where we're going right away. You're not actually answering the call. 
You're saying you still want control. If, if you say, I will follow you, Jesus, if, it's the same thing. You're not giving up control of your life. You're saying that you need to be control of your life. Because what you're saying is, is I need you to explain to me, God, how this is all supposed to go. And once I know how it's all supposed to go, then I will take that step in faith. Which it isn't, because you know how it's all going to go. And you've apparently assented and agreed to the program, and so you follow. We want God often to fit our agendas. But God comes to Abram, and he comes to you and me this morning, and he says, listen... I am your agenda. That's what you don't understand. Now, I said that was scary. It sounds kind of scary. It sounds scary to me. I always hate preaching these kinds of sermons because I feel like a total hypocrite because I'm so afraid to just step out and follow without knowing what's going on and now I'm telling you to do the same thing. Why does God do that to us? Why does he do that? Does he do that just because he wants to kind of flex his muscles and say, look, I'm God, prove that he's sort of the top gun and who's in charge? No, not at all. You need this third point. I need this third point. He does this because the call is a missional call. He's calling us personally. He's calling us radically because he's calling us missionally. This is the key, okay? This is what you have to hold on to. This is the why. There's a, there's a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche who is no friend of Christianity, but he did say that he who has a why can bear any how. He who has a why can bear any how. And when you don't get it, when you don't get why God is calling you to do something or to stop doing something or to go somewhere or whatever, you need to hold on to this. God calls Abram, right? But why does God call Abram? He says in verse 2, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And listen to this, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Why is God making this great name for Abram? So that he can bless all peoples on earth through him, all peoples are going to be blessed somehow through this person and his family. In other words, Abram is called to a task. He's called to a job. He's called to a mission. It's the same thing with Israel. Remember, they're sitting there in the desert. They're wondering, where are we going and why are we going and what's this all about? And God says, I have freed you from this place in Egypt and freed you and I'm bringing you to Canaan in order that you would be a blessing to the world. God didn't free Israel from slavery just because he heard their cries and said, man, it must really suck to be a slave. I should get them out of there because that's a really lousy way to live. No, God didn't do it just to relieve their suffering. He did it because they were part of something much, much bigger than themselves. And to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, is to realize that you are part of something much, much bigger than yourself. You're part of God's plan, God's project to bless others, to bless the world. Now, what does that mean for you? Because, I mean, I guess if you're, like, called to be the president of a country or something, maybe you have, like, some serious clout to bless people and bless the world. What does that mean for you and me? Well, think about it this way. 
When people make decisions, what do they typically do? How do they typically think about, about a decision they have to make? They probably think, well, what's, what's best for me? Or what's best for me and my family? So, for example, you're thinking about a job, uh, taking a job, and you, or, or pursuing a career, and you think to yourself, okay, well, you know, um, what's the pay like? Is that good for me and my family? And, what, you know, is there security in this position or in this vocation? And um, will I be able to have the kind of lifestyle I want to pursue and, and experience and that kind of thing? Or maybe uh, when you're making decisions about where to live, you say, you know, is it close to schools? Is it close to work? Am I close to a highway so I can get on it really quickly? That kind of stuff. Or is the size of the house going to be big enough for me to raise the number of kids I, I plan to have? All that kind of stuff. That's sort of the normal way of going through a decision-making process. And, you know, it makes total sense that you would make decisions based upon those kind of criteria. But then you're called by God. And all of a sudden, you're not making decisions simply based on what's best for me or what's best for my family. You start asking yourself, how can I best serve others? Where can I most be a blessing? In verse 2, you know, it says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. What God is telling Abram there is, this is how it works, Abram. If you seek my blessing, you'll come up empty. But if you seek to bless others, I will bless you. Now, if you make your decisions on this alternative metric, this this kingdom of God kind of metric, if you make your decisions based upon where can I be most a blessing or where can I serve uh, others the best, that kind of thing, you will make a decision that according to human perspective and according to human metrics will look foolish and unwise. And you will actually have people in your life tell you, you probably shouldn't do that. What are you thinking? You know, it's, I bring this up at every membership class. I, I, like, to, I like to have fun with people, and, and I like to invite them and, and during the membership class to consider, if they don't live in Dundas, that they actually move here for the sake of the mission of Grace Valley Church. And for the vast majority of people who would do that, or who would consider doing that, it would require them to move into a smaller house with a smaller yard and a bigger mortgage. Who in their right mind would do something like that? And for some of the people who are sitting in that class, it's actually a bit of a shock because they've never had a church dare to encourage them to to consider changing where they live for the sake of their membership in the church. Now, I want you to know, I'm not saying you have to live in Dundas to be part of Grace Valley Church. I'm not saying that. Listen to what I am saying. Your own spouse, maybe your own kids, will say to you, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You want us to go there where it's going to cost more to buy a place, we're going to have a smaller yard, we're further away from our place of work or further away from where we go to school or whatever? Okay, enough. Maybe, maybe that one's just too intense. Let's try a different one. Maybe God's calling you to leave this country and go to a foreign mission field. 
Maybe you do really, really well in school, and you could get into engineering at Waterloo, but God is calling you to go to YWAM in Brazil. And if you were to say that to your mom or your dad, they would say, but, 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 you're so smart. Why would you do that? Or they would say to you, what on earth are you thinking? I mean, we've invested so much time into your education. How about this one? Maybe God's just calling you to be a blessing to your cranky, lonely, crotchety neighbor. My dad has a friend who had a cranky, lonely, crotchety neighbor. And for six years, every Wednesday, she visited her and listened to her be cranky and lonely and crotchety and grumpy. And they started reading the Bible together. And six years later, six years later, she came to faith. It's not for me to tell you what God is calling you to do. It's for me to tell you, though, that to the degree that you are willing to get out, to that degree can you be a blessing to others. But let me just say this. When you do, there is nothing more thrilling or satisfying. Some of you frankly, have a bland religion. And you know it. Your relationship with God is kind of, eh, he died for me. I go to church and I sing about it. I throw a few bucks in a collection plate. And then I trudge off to work like everybody else on Monday. And I do my thing from Monday to Saturday. And then when I come back on Sunday, we sing I throw a few bucks in the collection plate and it's just, you're on the hamster wheel like everybody else. And it's because you don't realize God's calling you and he's calling you to something that is thrilling. It's an adventure. It's not going to be easy. Like, you know, Frodo had a nice, quiet, boring life until God said, I got this ring I need to get rid of. Not God, but you know, Gandalf. And he went on this incredible quest and adventure. But listen to what Jesus says. Like, listen, you're not the first people who are freaking out over the thought of following Jesus in radical ways. Listen to what he said to the disciples. And it's, of course, Peter speaking on behalf of them. Peter says, we have left all we have to follow you. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. There it is. Either he's true or he's false. So, are you answering the call? Even though it's super duper risky at times? That's probably why you're not, if you're like me, and you're probably, there's areas of your life where you're trying to, and then there's other ones where you're not so sure about it. You know, you're no different than Abram. 
how in the world did he do it? How in the world can we do it? Can we actually step out? Look at verse 30 of chapter 11. It's kind of weird. Now, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. And if you just read that line in the middle of the whole narrative, it, it seems like it doesn't fit. Why does, why does that detail get included? Is it just sort of a, a kind of a curious detail? Not at all. In fact, it is so important because you see all the other promises that God made to Abram, they rested on the promise of a son. That was what hinged, that was the hinge on which all the other promises turned. And Abram had to hold on to that one promise. Here's the thing though, he had to hold on a promise of a son. You and I, we have the son. Because we look back. Here's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the son that you and I need. Because you see, he had a call, right? He had the ultimate call. He was called to leave the security of heaven, leave his father's side, leave the throne, live like a homeless wanderer, and finally die on a piece of wood in the outskirts of the city like a common criminal. He gave his entire life for you. Everything. He gave up everything for you. So that you can give your life to him. He did it first. And he did it completely and entirely. So that even when you stumble into it pathetically and weak-neededly, if that's a word, and, and, and in a terrified way, you can know that he still receives it. You know, the biggest obstacle to answering the call is, is trust. You're, you're wondering, can I trust him? Can I really trust him, honestly? Pastor, you're telling me I can trust him, but I struggle to believe that I can trust him. Are you sure I can trust him? Would you look at the cross? What more evidence do you need? What more do you need from him? That he would leave all that glory in the heavenly places and he would come down to live among us. He would clothe himself like a little baby. He would spend 30 plus years living in the midst of our suffering and sorrow. And then he would go to that piece of wood willingly and die on the cross in your place and in my place and experience the judgment that you and I deserve. And he would experience all of that, all the suffering, all the ridicule, all the horror of it. He would do all of that for you. What more do you need? What more do you need? I don't need anything. He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? 